At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. the cryptid keeper podcast the podcast for cryptids and their keepers that's us and if you're listening it's you too i'm alex flanagan and i'm addison peacock and boy has it been a minute boy howdy has it sure <laughs> uh lots of things happening lots of very exciting things i for example am uh recording from the new house where i now live so that's big you're dang right uh, yeah, so I bought a house and in the process turned my realtor into a Cryptid Keeper fan. So Jen, if you're listening, um, hope you're still liking it. Uh, you know where I live, so I really hope you're still liking it. <laughs> oh no. Uh, but yeah. If she doesn't, do you think she'll, do you think she'll take the house back? Yeah, legally. That's in our contract, actually. If, if she gets let down by one of the later episodes, she could just repossess a house that never belonged to her. <laughs> Alex, I told you not to add that clause. Well, it just seemed so fun and frisky. Like, I hadn't ever seen anything like it, and I respect the originality, you know? <laughs> oh, of course. I just started a new job, and you also just started a new job. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm in a very new job. I'm not going to be talking about it in this public place, um, because yeah, fair. it is a somewhat public job, and so the, if I release any information about it, it would be very easy to find where I live and work, so... Um, that's that. But I am enjoying it very much. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be very vague about mine as well, except just to say that I it is at a museum. There are, like, approximately 40 museums in the Los Angeles area, so, like, good luck. Um, <laughs> so that's not a go. challenge. That's not me issuing a challenge. <laughs> yeah. That's more just saying that that's all I'll say. Um, I guess I will say, uh, sort of vaguely, that my job is in arts management, so I'm enjoying that quite a bit. It's nice. One, you're killing it. Two, you're a star. Three, I'm proud of you. Four, you want to do a show? I would love to do a show. Your audio is doing some weird things, but we'll power through. It's okay. We're going to get through it. Uh, it's summer. Things are kind of free and easy. And uh, just as my thoughts do during the summer, like I think many other young people's thoughts do when it begins to get kind of hot and steamy outside, uh, my thoughts turn to... Uh-huh. The second most bisexual movie of all time. Which is? <laughs> Which is 1999 summer smash hit The Mummy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, do you disagree? I've never seen The Mummy. <laughs> Wait, you've never seen The Mummy? The Brendan Fraser The Mummy, right? You've never seen The Mummy with Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser. You've never seen it. I've never seen The Mummy with Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser. I've never seen it. I literally don't understand how you're friends with me and you've never seen The Mummy. This isn't a failing on your part, it's a failing on mine. Well, last time we were hanging out in the summer, you did make me watch all of The Stand. That was good. <laughs> I did make you watch The Stand, which was way more grueling. Um, I should have just made you watch The Mummy four times. <laughs> in its entirety, in one day. <laughs> we did watch it in one sitting, yeah. So like I said, I could have just made you watch The Mummy four times and that would have been roughly the same like uh, chronological experience. It would have been a very different emotional journey. Oh, yeah. Um, but The Mummy is an incredible movie. I believe you. It's very fun. 
Um, and as previously stated, it is the second most bisexual film of all time. What's the number one? Search your heart. You know the answer. Oh, God, of course. It's Thor Ragnarok. What am I saying? Yeah, it's Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok is the most <laughs> bisexual movie of all time. The 1999 The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz is the second. I don't know what any of the others are. I just know those two and they're both important to me. So yeah, um, you would love it. It's Again, it's got Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, so I don't know what else to tell you. Like, if that hasn't been no, enough yeah, of a yeah. selling point for you in this 20-something years of your existence, it's never going to be enough for you. So, oh, except that it also has Odette Fair and Arnold Vosloo in it, both of whom are gorgeous. Um, also, I think Patricia Velasquez plays an Oxuna Moon, so, like, get on that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> did you bring this up for a specific reason or just because? Oh, because this week's cryptid is Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Oh, oh, amazing. Let's go. <laughs> no, um, it's not. We were talking about mummies, actually. <gasps> oh! Yeah. Oh, ooh, ooh. Sorry, I just got really excited. Um, I was going to say, is, is this a good ooh, or is this like a ooh, like that's too close to zombies and Alex messed up? No, no, no. This is like uh, when I was a little kid and I was checking out all these very macabre books from my school's library about like medieval torture and various other sundry things. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was very obsessed with during this period of my life that never really actually ended was um, mummification stuff. I used to come home and just like very proudly tell my parents about how they would keep all the organs in different jars and the mm -hmm. hook that you put up the nose to pull the brain yeah. out. So um, uh, anyway, that means that you have something in common with the whole of Victorian England, which is is you have Egyptomania. Uh, that was like a whole ass thing. Oh, I also know that people used to buy and consume powdered mummies during that they time They did, period. and we're going to cover that. And that's not even the most wild thing people did in their mummy obsession. Like, if, if you are anybody who in this decade of existence has looked at like a teenager and criticized them for the extent to which they celebrate their fandom um you need to rethink yourself and your actions and your perspectives because i'm going to tell you some stuff about victorians <laughs> that will blow your freaking mind <laughs> oh no oh no i knew about the eating of the mummy the mummy powder because i yeah uh... it, it gets weirder than eating powdered mummies <laughs> Oh my god, we're going beyond the boundaries of research I did for an article I wrote on medical cannibalism, so... Yeah, um, it's a lot, so... Okay, <laughs> take me on a trip. So we'll, we'll go there. Um, so mummies. Mummies are one of those things that you're going to argue, not technically a cryptid, to which I say, oh, technically, yes, a cryptid. We know for a fact that mummies exist, <laughs> is the one thing. I was going to say, so like... that part of it is not... That part of it is not objectionable. However, I do have some sightings for you in a way that will make the end what? of this very interesting. I know, right? I'm... No, you don't. No, you don't. Sorry, I don't know why I've decided to. I do. I literally do. <gasps> okay. 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 I, I do. I do. I do have some, um, some mummy sightings in America, actually, which I was not expecting. Side note, just really quick before you get into it, since you brought up zombies, I want to just go ahead and clarify the reason mummies are more acceptable to me than zombies is because, one, bandages can't see some of the scary yeah, bits. definitely. Two, they have usually a specific purpose in Rising from the Dead. Often it's revenge for being disturbed. They're not here to bring about an apocalypse and, like, just feed an unending hunger until there is no more humanity left. Like, they don't represent the, like, extinction of the human race in a way that zombies do to me. So there's also that. Yeah, I would actually... Um, I could do a whole episode just talking about, like, the symbology of mummies in literature and pop culture. It's really fascinating. And in looking up 
just stuff about mummies for this podcast, which is always sort of like, eh, we do research, but I would say the nature of my research takes me down very different roads than what most of my research would take me down. Um, I actually found a lot of very, very interesting and very high-minded and brilliantly composed like essays on uh, the role of mummies in literature and in uh, like performance and what they mean to us and why they're psychologically interesting. And uh, all by people much smarter and with much more time on their hands than I. So I can't really go down that road fully. But we will talk about some of it because I think that it's interesting to understand sort of how the mummy got from what it was to occupying this place in like the Scooby-Doo pantheon of mom- like monsters that we immediately think of yeah. when we think of Halloween scares. You know <laughs> Oh, Raggy, um, it's, it's a mummy journey. <laughs> that was my Scooby Doo. Your Owen Wilson is better. Thanks. I also forgot that all the words start with R, and then I just gave it up and said mummy regular because <laughs> I don't understand Scooby Doo's accent. I've never understood why that's the accent a dog would have. <laughs> it really doesn't make any sense at all. Like, what are the implications? Like, if a dog says "ruff ruff," like, what are what are you saying he's actually saying? If the R is supposed to be something, I don't know. It it raises more questions than it answers. He's telling you to toughen up. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming for me like that, Scoob. So, mummies. It's okay. So if you are, for some reason, not aware of or familiar with the concept of mummification, uh, mummification is basically, in most general terms, simply the preservation of a dead body, usually through a specific process. But mummification doesn't have to mean any of those things. Mummification doesn't have to mean bandages. Mummification doesn't have to mean pulling the brain out through the nose with a hook, which body horror, I apologize, does happen in mummification. You might want to slap a warning on the top of this one. Oh, I will. Also, just a general warning for discussion of death, since we're talking Pretty much nothing but death from start to finish. It's it's just, it's body horror all the way down from here, lads. So apologies for that. But mummification actually is a much older process, even than the most ancient civilizations that we think of. Mummification is a natural process in a lot of places. In fact, in a lot of places where you have hot, dry, sandy conditions, mummification happens very naturally because people die, their bodies lay in the sand for a hundred years. And next thing you know, bada bing, bada boom, you've got like a perfectly preserved mummy. Or in conditions where it's very dry and very cold, the same thing happens. In places where you have these extreme nature naturally just preserves these human bodies. And there's a lot of thought that coming across those well-preserved cadavers is what inspired the process of intentional mummification. So, you know, it makes sense if you're thinking about that in places like Egypt, where it is uh, hot and dry and sandy, Mm -hmm. that they would come across things like this and say to themselves, oh, like, what a fascinating process. We can recreate this. So it took on a very ceremonial purpose, a very scientific purpose, and that was all intentional. Absolutely. I am going to say a phrase that uh, has just been just ringing around in my brain while you were talking about natural mummification. And it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad for both of us, but I have to release it or it'll consume me until I die. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, people jerky. Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. But that's only about the naturally occurring mummies. I don't want to. I don't want to make make yes. light of the ceremonial and the religious aspects of mummification <laughs> later. Uh, so mummification is intentional mummification. I should say is at its core a representation of what we have always known and will always know about humans, which is that we are fascinated with death. 
that mm -hmm. is a constant pretty much from the beginning of recorded time until the already prophesied end of times, <laughs> which again comes down to these same sort of fixations we have on beginnings and endings and cycles and the natural processes of living and dying. It's all very fascinating to us. It's the lens through which we sort of have to understand the time that we have now. And that is really interesting. Um, but what else is interesting about mummies is that they are representative of this kind of historical phenomenon where some culture that uh, Eurocentrism later perceived as kind of ancient and mysterious and barbaric uh, was actually mm -hmm. like way ahead of the game of them oh, in very many ways. In an incredible amount of ways. <laughs> oh, so many ways. So mummies, again, were sort of, we think of them as being an Egyptian tradition, um, and they are central to that culture and that area of the world. However, mummies were not exclusively Egyptian in nature. There were intentional mummification processes happening in, a, happening in a number of cultures, specifically ones that had ideas revolving around the way the physical body was important in the afterlife. So... Mm -hmm. You'll hear um, a lot of stories if you are, for example, familiar with the story of Cleopatra in any way, uh, specifically the ways in which she's been sort of like mythologized and canonized in literature. You'll know that Cleopatra chose a very specific way to uh, end her own life because she wanted to preserve her physical body as well as she could. Um, and so there are all sorts of interesting quirks to notice about the ways in which that affected like everyday life, but we're really not going to get super into that. The one big misconception I need to clear up before we go any further is that people tend to assume, and the Mummy movie really did nobody any favors on this point, that mummies are like inherently cursed or have some sort of like... There, there is some sort of evil or sinister connotation to mummies and mummification, and that is just not true. Uh, yeah. Mummification was a process that occurred for uh, royalty in the upper class. It's also a process that occurred on different scales and levels of grandeur for pretty much everybody, especially in Egyptian culture. They were a really, really prevalent phenomenon. They were everywhere, which means that there was no shortage of mummy bodies around. And this is important yeah. as we get into the next part of this story. Now, only rich people can afford to curse their dead bodies. So that's why only the wealthy mummies, like the pharaohs <laughs> and such, have curses. Yeah, if a mummy does come back to curse you, um, that mummy was loaded. That mummy was very wealthy because the working class cannot afford curses. <laughs> was doing super well for itself. Yeah, don't worry about that. Not even one bit. So here's where it gets really weird. <laughs> oh, okay. Here's where it gets weird. All right. Thank you for giving me time to prep myself. Um, so starting in around the 19th century, when Egypt started to be colonized by Victorian England, um, this, Boo. yeah, bad stuff, gross, but it gets grosser because this culture craze really took off. And this is where Egyptomania came into play. Victorians uh, here we go. were <laughs> obsessed with Egypt, like so much. They were so obsessed with Egypt that they took it upon themselves to just, like, bring back whatever Egyptian stuff they could find. So, like, they would roll back up to England with an alligator and a mummy and be like, look what I found. <laughs> Which oh, is my God. So strange. Um, you mentioned earlier that these people consumed powdered mummy for its health benefits. That is correct. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that actually dates back even earlier than the Victorian era. People ate powdered mummy because, or powdered, like, dead bodies because they thought it had healing properties. Yep. They Medical cannibalism. They thought eating a dead body was a cure-all. And that's actually where the word mummy comes from. It comes from the word for a specific kind of, um, like, a specific kind of compound, uh, bitumen, I think, is what it comes, it comes from the word for bitumen. And they believed that it was like a, a total curative, like a like <laughs> like it would restore all your ails. It was the biggest snake oil nonsense of all time, and it actually mm-hmm. did way more harm than good because, of course, eating dead bodies does more harm than good. Yeah. Oh, and my little fun fact, not so fun fact, sad fact. Um, well, here's an Addison sad fact. Uh, a lot of the powdered mummies in Victorian England specifically, because as you might imagine, it's pretty expensive to get dead people from Egypt to England were not actually Mm -hmm. Egyptian mummies. They were marketed as such. They were actually uh, dead bodies stolen from unmarked graves in Ireland. Yep. So, of course, uh, as Because the English can't leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) And because, as with any other sort of, like, fad health craze, um, it's unsustainable in more ways than one. And so, you know, if you start selling like powdered anything that is supposedly so beneficial because of how rare it is, like you're going to run out of it and then you're not going to want to stop making that goop money. And so you're going to start selling anything you can get your greedy little mitts on. Mm-hmm. But anyway, like I said, this was not the weirdest part of this. Okay. So consuming the powdered flesh of the dead is a weird thing. <laughs> But uh-huh. what's even weirder, what's even weirder is hosting a party where you invite all your friends over and unwrap a dead body. Oh my god. Victorian mummy parties were the social event of the season. People would go over to Egypt to show off how much money they had. They would pick up a dead body while they were there. They would bring it back and they would invite all their friends over from the time they got off the boat and they would have a mummy unwrapping party. Oh my god. They just unspooled it there on the floor (laughs) or on their very nice table. Yeah. Oh no. And these were huge social events. It's the original unboxing video. <laughs> but like obviously, you know, horrifying and treating a real human oh, yeah, being in the worst possible and way. Treating a real human being who lived like a method of entertainment which says a lot about how the English viewed Egyptian people, but that's its own conversation. Yeah. They Victorian Victorians were the original shock YouTubers. Jesus Louise. Um, I It is wild. Yeah, and these were high society events. I cannot stress this enough. This wasn't like a fringe thing people did on the side. It wasn't even like a socially unacceptable thing that people did in secret in like the sordid underbelly of London. These were like the top echelon of society would publicly host these parties and invite all of their high society friends over so they could unwrap a mummy and see what trinkets fell out. There's a butler passing around tea cakes while women are like drinking sherry while someone's unwrapping a mummy. Yeah, it's nuts. Oh, Evelyn, you simply must come to my mummy unwrapping party. (laughs) Dear God. We'll have the finest foie gras and... We'll look upon the specter of death. Yeah, it's wild. So anyway, around this time, um, mummies, as you might imagine, started to be like exoticized in fiction and in literature. But 
at the time, they were not really a horror element. In fact, they were exclusively erotic. I don't know how else to say this. Mummies were like a romantic, like a romantic sort of object in fiction. People. Okay. Yeah. Are you just ready to go with this? So. No, 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 no. I have some questions. I have some okay, questions sure. that I'm going to need, mm-hmm. and I'm going to need them right now. Uh, sure. And I'm going to need them as just as objectively and as coldly rendered to me as possible. Uh, when you say the mummy is a romantic object in the story, do you mean that a romance revolves between two human alive adult people or whatever, between two living people, and the mummy is a centerpiece in this story? Or do you mean to tell me that before vampires... Before werewolves, before zombies, before Holly Black's sexy fairies, there was mummy erotica. Which one, Alex? Tell me which one it is. Well, um, you're familiar with the author. Tell me of which one. Yeah, you're from. Let me. Let me. Okay, let me get there. You're familiar with Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. Yes. Yeah, Bram Stoker. Um, he also wrote a book called The Jewel of Seven Stars, published in 1903. It's the first person narrative. First person. Uh huh. It's self-insert fan fiction. Sure. Of a young man pulled into an archaeologist's plot to revive Queen Terra, an ancient Egyptian mummy. Uh-oh. Yes. So, um, so there's that. So is Queen Terra just, like, very, very sexy? I mean, she's, she's kind of sexy, right? Just a very sexy woman. All right. I mean, good for her. I mean, she's kind of sexy, Addison. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, this was one of very many books. Um, one of these books called uh, Iris, a Mystery, actually has the protagonist marry a mummy. Now, the mummy does take on the form of a beautiful woman, but he does marry a mummy. Okay, yeah, but he doesn't care about her past. He cares about her present and her future. <laughs> <laughs> Which all may sort of be the same thing, depending on how you look at the afterlife. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Starting in the 1930s is when we start to see the uh, the romantic mummy sort of take a side seat, and then we get the monster mummy movies. And that is, mm-hmm. of course, because of Boris Karloff. Boris! Now, uh, Boris Karloff, who is famous for playing pretty much every monster that you eventually see on Scooby-Doo, <laughs> played mm-hmm. the mummy in the 1932 movie uh, just called The Mummy. It's actually the one that the 1999 movie is very loosely based on. I've seen both. There's really not much relation between them. Um, but that really is I mean, what- there's a mummy in both. There is a mummy in both of them. Um, Boris Karloff is not in both of them. Brendan Fraser is also only oh. in one of them. <laughs> Such a shame. <laughs> it really is a tragedy. I would love to see a time-traveling Brendan Fraser in the 1930s movie. Brendan Fraser already looks to me like he's in the 1930s. Also, full disclosure, sometimes when I say Brendan Fraser, my brain is picturing Ewan McGregor because I cannot tell these men apart. That's kind of wild. I don't... Well, okay. I literally can't talk because I do not know what John Hamm looks like. I have seen him in things, and every time you say John Hamm, I cannot picture his face. You you watched Good Omens. I know. I know. I know. Like... Anyway, this is like a constant source of, not tension, it's a constant source of um, making fun of me on Andrew's end because I just cannot for the life of me picture John Hamm's face. I think he is the most like- You have like- Like if you told me to just picture like a, an average yet attractive white middle-aged dude, like John Hamm's face, I guess is just kind of what happens. (laughs) I just feel like you have a very specific, like a very- 
very specialized kind of face blindness that only applies to John Hamm. <laughs> just, just John Hamm. John Hamm and people who kind of look like John Hamm, which I happen to think is most Hollywood actors. Um, but Brendan Fraser, I know. I have to look up Brendan Fraser because I keep catching myself picturing Ewan McGregor because I don't think I know what Brendan Fraser looks like. Oh, I mean, that's fair. Um, Brendan, yeah, Google Brendan Fraser the mummy um, and okay, then just sort of look, look at him. They the could be the related. Could they? Ewan McGregor is a Kelpie. That's true, but I just mean that they look like cousins. Can I talk more about mummies now? Yes, please. Okay, so in the 1930s, because of Boris Karloff and the Mummy movie, um, we end up getting more of this, like, monstrous aspect of mummies and more mummies that are less coming after you for uh, some fruitful nighttime encounters and more mummies who are coming after you to enact some sort of horrible vengeance upon you. That I'm going to need the phrase fruitful <laughs> nighttime encounters to be stricken from your vocabulary. Thank you so much. Um, well, you know, sometimes we get halfway through an episode and then I remember that children listen to this show and I have to come up with some very creative ways to get around the fact that 98% of people who look at monsters on the reg are doing so for a very specific reason. But in any case, <laughs> I'm not calling anyone who is on this podcast right now out. I'm just saying. We will not be silenced. We will not be erased. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that 1930s movie kind of uh, put a lot of ideas into people's heads about what mummies were and what they meant and where they mm -hmm. came from. And so from as best I can understand or find... A lot of the things that we just sort of assume are like canonical mummy lore now are really just kind of because that movie decided so and because the yeah. the literature at that specific time decided so. We have no reason to believe that anyone who was in the act of creating mummies back in the mummification days like was cursing them. That's just sort of a thing that we decided <laughs> later on. Right. I um it is very interesting that when you think about the fact that there is a lot of lore like there's a lot of things we sort of associate with mummies uh imagery of like uh for me at least uh thinking about god the Jimmy Neutron episode mm -hmm. where they go to Egypt um I think about like scarab beetles yeah I think yeah about, definitely I think about like just kind of you know how like in speaking of Victorian times and earlier they assumed that illness was caused by like a miasma like a just cloud of yeah. bad. I always imagine some sort of like sickly green like misty cloud that like descends over the people who open mm -hmm. the tomb and that's the curse or something. I don't know. And none of those really have any roots in anything real. I mean scarab beetles do exist and But definitely do definitely cursed, live right? Like, in we're the desert getting cursed. Yeah, yeah cursed. for sure cursed. For sure cursed. Um, and, and that is just, like, totally an invention. Anyway, that was the 1930s. And that, as you can imagine, didn't last long before people decided to make it um, sexy again. So in 1989, um, Anne Rice wrote a novel called The Mummy, oh, or Ramsey's of course the she Dead. And that novel... Oh, Anne. Yeah, that novel um, included... I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia, so um, cover your kiddo's ears. Yeah. Involved... I'm familiar with the works of Anne Rice. <laughs> involved a sexual relationship between a benevolent male mummy and a female archaeologist. I'm listening. <laughs> benevolent. <laughs> benevolent is a lot. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I like it. It's, it's clearly expressing that his intentions are good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 
It's fine. I don't like the word benevolent when applied to any sort of relationship dynamic. I don't like the idea that someone is being charitable (laughs) by by doing romance with you. Like that's oh fair. I thought the implication was that he was once a benevolent king, but maybe I don't know. It's wild though. Um. Anyway, uh, to just finish out this paragraph, the trend intensified throughout the late 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. Modern works of fiction featuring romanticized living mummies include. The 1997 horror fiction novella Don't Tell Mummy by Tom B. Stone. I hate that. The 2006 fantasy novel Freaks Alive on the Inside by Annette Curtis-Klaus. And the 2011 video game The Next Big Thing by Pendulo Studios. See, also, the uh, 1997 Buffy the Vampire Vampire Slayer episode Inca Mummy Girl, wherein an ancient Incan mummy on display at the Sunnydale Museum is brought to life and becomes a beautiful teenage girl that Xander briefly dates before uh, she becomes a mummy again. Well, there you go. And that was my little, that was my contribution. I definitely appreciated that contribution. That episode uh, does not age well. Okay, sorry. I mean... Well, that's a conversation for a different time. No, it's, I was it's... going to ask you how many Buffy episodes really do age well. But... Not a lot. Some of them do. Yeah. Anyway, um, in my research and my studies, I don't have as much time as I would love to dwell on this article, but I do want to recommend it because it's a really, really cool read. Uh, there's an article on themedium.com, or medium.com, uh, which is titled, Why We Fear Mummies and Should We? It's pretty long, but it's really, really fascinating. And it sort of goes into exploring, like, where the mummy craze came from, how it evolved over time, speculates on, like, what mummies represent to us and how they sort of affect us on a psychological level. There's a lot of really interesting discussion in there about how mummies sort of, ironically enough, became an allegory for disease because... You know, when something that started as a uh, very ill-advised attempt to cure ourselves of sickness Mm -hmm. and in the process probably ended up creating more of it, like, there's sort of this interesting vengeance and, like, fate and irony dynamic to that that Mm -hmm. shows up again and again and again in mummy lore as it's been crafted and evolved over time. When you're talking about a creature that, like, comes back specifically to enact revenge on somebody who wronged it. Like, it's really interesting how that evolved in a very sort of unself-aware and unintentional way out of a very fitting history. Oh, yeah. It's really, really interesting. But you made a point earlier that I really liked, and I want to double back to it, which is talking about how the difference between mummies and zombies is motivation. Mm -hmm. And how zombies are sort of usually depicted as, like, for lack of a better word, mindless creatures who mm-hmm. will just sort of do wrong to anything that crosses their path. They're creatures driven by, like, the basest animal instinct, the most primal drives. And what makes a zombie terrifying is that lack of humanity. Yes. Whereas I think what makes a mummy horrifying is that it contains only, like, the worst elements the things that we are most scared of about humanity, which is our drive for revenge and our, like, calculating intelligence and these passions that last for centuries, you know? Like, there's something really, Mm. really fascinating about looking at a mummy as sort of the embodiment of a grudge that's been held way too long Mm -hmm. or a love affair that never got closure. Like, it's really, really interesting that these things have come to represent these sort of, like, timeless ideas in a way that's really terrifying to us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's just really, really cool. <laughs> I think it's super, super neat. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. But um, I wanted to mention that article because it does a really good job of diving into that and sort of exploring it. And um, I think that that's very, very fun. I think it's also one of the things that makes the 1999 movie so successful is that it really sort of captures in like a scary, fun, campy, but also like serious and like genuinely engaging way um, just sort of people battling very people-esque impulses, you know? It's really, really cool. Like, that movie, without going into just a deep dive on why I love the 1999 Mummy movie, because I love it a lot, it's sort of a very fascinating meditation on, like, people's very human flaws, marking them as targets for this very human villain. And it doesn't do that like it doesn't in a way that is like subtle I guess but if you look at the movie for more than five minutes it's like oh yeah okay this person's like impulse for greed even up till the very end is what killed them or like this person's pride is what got that like it's it's interesting and it's interesting because they're all presented in a way that is sort of like very obvious and campy but really thoughtful and it's a great movie I highly recommend it do you know where I can find it like to stream or anything that's a separate question it's fine I'll look for it later it was on it it's okay it was on Netflix for a while it might still be I'm gonna look for it later I have a it's my day off today I kind of want to just like chill and watch the mummy yeah watch the mummy <laughs> um live text the entire thing to me I love that yeah movie. dude all right you got it you know, every, t- every time, like, a, um, like, what four characters are you meme goes around, I, um, I always struggle with it because I'm always like, oh, I don't know what to put. But, like, at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is I am literally just the exact combination of Rick O'Connell and Evie. So it's fine. It's fine. That's just who I am deep inside. Can't wait to know what that means. Can't you? It's going to be great. <laughs> Tell me more about mummies. Um, so now that I've gone through all of that sort of that, that journey, um, I did promise you sightings. Yeah, you did, and I would expect you to deliver after all this time. I shallst. Uh, so anyway, the issue of mummies is like a very fascinating thing because, um, again, we've sort of just explicitly explained that like all of these horror stories about mummies are totally baseless and that mummy monsters are not and have never been a thing. But that does not explain the bandage man of Cannon Beach. The what now? The Bandage Man of Cannon Beach. Are you ready for a journey? Yes. 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 Okay, so. uh, This is a story from Oregon, actually. And it is apparently a fairly classic Oregon ghost story. I think it's around the Portland area, but it is from the area called Cannon Beach. And it is one of those stories that is, like, probably an urban legend, Probably just sort of like a superstition kind of thing. But there are also people who swear that they've had encounters with the bandage man. And the bandage man is, I kid you not, exactly what he sounds like. It is like this figure that stalks around in the night, wrapped totally in bandages. It's the wildest thing. I was not expecting to find any sightings for this episode, but here we are. Hell yeah. So according to onlyinyourstate.com, The story of the Bandage Man is an urban legend that's been around since the 1960s. It may have started as a way to deter young lovers from parking in overlooks along Highway 101. And so that's fairly typical urban legend fodder, right? Like, yeah, you know, you're out in your car late at night and there's a spooky thing. 
So if anything has taught me anything in the just horror and urban legend cultural canon, it is that you should never, ever, ever be in a car as a teenager with another teenager at night with the radio on. Because then you'll hear about an escaped murderer. If I took all of my survival advice from movies, um, I would just, I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the worst thing you can do for yourself is be a teenager and know other teenagers. Yeah. It never goes well. Particularly to know them biblically. All right. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, the story goes that a young couple is parked in a truck somewhere near Cannon Beach. So in this particular story, we'll be talking about this specific couple that sort of starts the urban legend. Oblivious to their surroundings, uh, they're, you know, getting hot and heavy when the truck shifts as though someone had climbed up into the truck bed. Absolutely not. They looked out their rear window to find a man covered in bandages rocking the truck back and forth. (gasps) Ah! (laughs) He started pounding on the window and the top of the truck as the boy pulled the truck out of the overlook and started racing down the highway. The couple drove for a few miles with the bandage man still beating on the truck until he suddenly disappeared. Stories of the bandage man continue to plague Cannon Beach and the stretch of Highway 101 nearby. Over the years, some drivers have reported a man covered in bandages jumping onto their cars. Sweethearts in parking lots or overlooks report seeing the bandage man approaching their car, while others say that they've seen him on the beach and walking down the side of either Highway 101 or a short road known locally as Bandage Man Road, which connects to Cannon Beach. Um, Some people apparently believe that the bandage man is the ghost of a logger who died after horrific injuries sustained while working nearby. There is no other explanation given for that. Oh, well, that's just... I mean, bandages. Some people believe that, I guess, and then we move right along. Do we know anything else about the bandage man? He's said to smell horribly of rotting flesh. And sometimes, understandable. Uh, and sometimes he leaves small pieces of bloody bandages in his wake, which I'm sure is very helpful when you pull one out from behind you at the campfire while everybody is listening and raptured to your story, right? It's always nice when you can have a prop. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's a mummy, the bandages would not be bloody, unless it's somebody else's blood and not his. I did just add that element yeah. to the story. Uh, or unless somebody did a really bad job mummifying. <laughs> yeah, they just didn't do the part where you drain all the blood out. That's probably where the part about him being, like, um, a a victim of, like, an accident comes from, right? Mm-hmm. So if he died of yeah. injuries. I guess there's some debate over whether that would make him a mummy or not, but he's the bandage man. So, and, you know, technically mummy just means preserved after his death. So um, if he's still, you know, in good enough shape to hold onto your car and bang on the roof, I'd say he's pretty well preserved. You know what? You're right. I'm right, and I should say it. This has been a game of semantics chicken. And <laughs> um, so actually, the other really good source on the bandage man comes from westsideportlandinsurance.com. And yes, yeah. I'm sorry, no. It's okay. an insurance website, but they do really good coverage on the bandage man. So if you'll allow me just a moment to read this totally non-sponsored piece. Go. Do it. Far from the rooted in history scares of Portland's Shanghai tunnels, the Bandage Man haunts a lonely patch of a decommissioned highway near the idyllic coastal town of Cannon Beach. Um, this was clearly written by some poor insurance agent who really wanted to be an author and it just never took off. Oh. <laughs> this, this sentence is incredible. We're reading your story, Gerald. 
This sentence is incredible. Like many slightly pervy ghosts, he likes to mess with randy teenagers (laughs) making out in their cars. They put that on, that's on like a business's website, huh? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, Though more sinister legends have him, uh, warning for animal cruelty, eating dogs, wandering the windswept roadside, and even jumping in the back of pickups and sedans. Pickups I get? This guy's jumping into the back of sedans, though? (laughs) That's a lot. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm good, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, the bandage man is a phantom of a man completely wrapped in bandages that haunts this small community. The bloody figure who smells of rotting flesh jumps into vehicles passing on a road outside of town. Notably pickup trucks or open-topped cars, but also sedans, station wagons, and even sports cars. Can you imagine this guy climbing into a mini coupe? (laughs) Oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> like he throws open your door. He throws open your door, asks you to step out for a second so he can put the seat down, climbs into the back. He hops onto the back of somebody's jag. Like <laughs> they said sports cars. Oh man, I love it so much. What if you're driving one of those cute little smart cars that's like doesn't really have a back? <laughs> It's just like a little box. <laughs> it's just a two-seater. He just like climbs onto the console in between you and your date. <laughs> <laughs> Sit there awkwardly. Leave room for the bandage man, kids. <laughs> oh no. I would prefer not to leave any room. Are you for looking him. for a nice secular alternative to your leave room for Jesus speech? Consider. Leave room for the bandage man. Leave some room for the bandage man on the console of your car, kiddos. All right. Tell me more. Anyway, the bandage man um made his earliest documented appearance in the 50s. He was likely a spooky story just told around campfires, but... But? After hearing that tale late at night, then retiring to the confines of a secluded road for a little third base action, it's a story that carries enough creepy weight to seriously kill the mood, which is why it's persisted for decades. (laughs) I'm really troubled, genuinely, that this insurance company's website included the phrase a little third base action on their their professional business website. It's pretty wild. Yeah, no, they super did, which is which is a lot. But anyway, there is an account still on this insurance website, which is wild. This person did their research, I guess. I mean, I can't do really they, talk. I'm using this site for my research. Do they provide bandage man insurance? I genuinely can't figure out another reason that this is on this website. <laughs> it, it, we'll get to it at the end. It's like a fun little reveal. Oh, okay. Anyway, there they ha- there's an account here. Um, it's unsighted, so come on, Gerald. But... It's cited as a uh, a lady from Cannon Beach speaking in a paranormal investigator group online. Her name is unknown. She says, I have been aware of this story for over 40 years, for I was a child in the community where it got its start. I knew some of the family of the kid that first encountered the bandage man. Ah, uh, yeah. There's an old road that for all the years I was growing up was just known as Bandage Man Road. It was just an old section of Highway 101 that had been bypassed when a new section was put in place, but it was still accessible and wasn't very long. Just a short loop off of the highway. The whole thing from end to end could be driven in maybe five minutes or so. This loop of road was a popular place for local kids to go park and make out. That was around 1960 to 61. That's where the story started. Um, And then it goes on to tell the same story about the individual, uh, you know, driving in the car, bandage man jumps on it, rocks the truck bed back and forth, bangs on the window. Anyway, the kid started his engine, got it in gear, and tore out of there, his girlfriend screaming in terror as the man in the back continued his pounding. Any of you who've been to Bandage Man Road or Cannon Beach know how curvy the roads are, and to drive them at high speed is dangerous. 
On they went after what seemed an eternity. They made it to downtown Cannon Beach where the boy's family owned a service station that they lived next door to in a greenhouse. Once they got there, they looked in the back and the bandaged figure was nowhere to be seen. And then the article goes on to say, At Bill Higley Insurance, we cover a lot of things with our amazing deals on car insurance, but not a haunted Chevy. And was he first spotted in the 1950s or 60s? And why does he just scare teens on a deserted highway? We may never know. Yeah. Thanks for your journalism. <laughs> journalism, yes. <laughs> it's something, all right. Anyway, there are a few people who insist that they have, in fact, seen the bandage man um, or encountered him. Obviously, there are none that have any sort of evidence or anything even remotely similar to evidence. But it is an interesting story, and I'm very into the fact that it, like, has persisted for so very long. There's one more really interesting thing about mummies, and it's not interesting so much as it's just kind of sad, but oh. there is actually a West Virginia tie to mummies, which is kind of strange. Wow, okay. If you go to Atlas Obscura or like Roadside America, you'll end up stumbling upon some research about a roadside attraction from the late 1800s known as Hamrick's Mummies. Uh, Hamrick's Mummies were, there's really not a better way to put this, they were two like... Medical cadavers purchased from the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, which is now known as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, if you've ever been. I have. It's haunted as anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really cool building. It's very sad, very haunted. And um, what this article refers to as West Virginia's own backwoods Dr. Frankenstein mummified them with his patented embalming potion. Oh, it's a lot. Um, he had done earlier, earlier experiments with vegetables, snakes, and the head of a man that he kept in a jar. Where did His he get it? His goal was to unlock the secrets of the pharaohs and recreate their unique methods of post-mortem preservation. Hmm. And he succeeded because the two mummies are still even now today displayed in the Barber County Historical Museum. Wow. All right. Um, the, the one last end cap on that is that, uh... After his own death, Hamrick was not mummified. He left the potion and the instructions, but his assistants were too squeamish. Cowards. <laughs> yeah, right. They were cowards. Anyway, um, those mummies ended up sort of going on a, a European pass with P.T. Barnum and some other nonsense. They were very much like a horrific relic of their time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like most of mummy culture is. So long story short... Um, mummies were primarily, like, mummies as we know them today were primarily the result of some really horrific European fixations on cultures that do not belong to us and that we should never have exploited in the horrible ways that we did, which included a lot of really weird party cultures and, like, some consumption of a variety that should not have ever occurred. I can't recommend strongly enough that you do not try any of this at home. Please don't eat mummies. I endorse nothing that we talked about in this episode, with the exception of the 1999 mummy movie starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. It's so good. I want you, by the way, I, I'm not usually one to, like, this is a lie, I'm not usually one to, like, demand someone give me their approval or demand someone validate me. Um, again, that is a lie. But uh, I would really appreciate it if you could recognize how strong I am for going this entire recording session without once making an are you my mummy joke. Duly noted. Thank you. It took a lot. So I just... Very proud of you. It's nice to feel mm -hmm. yep. recognized. No. It's nice to feel seen. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Do we have any announcements for the good people? Yes, actually. Or uh, a couple things. Uh, mainly one that we... Uh, 
are we are tent- I will tentatively say we are back on a regular schedule of releases. Uh, after all of that, I want to do a quick thank you to everyone who helped make the live show in Chicago possible because that was fantastic and so 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 fun and so like just an unbelievable experience I never thought we would get to have and just wanted to bring that up again. I also wanted to thank a couple of Patreons at the uh, tier that provides an online thank you. Sorry it took us so long. We had a couple weeks where we weren't releasing a new episode and that is big thank you to Jason Kingsley and to Harmony Asteria. Uh, Thank you to you both and thank you to all of our patrons and all of our listeners and just to truly all of you who support the show in absolutely any way you can be that downloads, be that word of mouth or financial support. Any of it is, is appreciated no matter what and it truly is the reason that the show or one of the reasons that the show continues to be. And I can't thank you enough for that. Um, so that's... Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the note of cool things that our, our patrons made possible, actually a really neat side effect of everybody who donated money to get us out to the live show in Chicago was that um, another really cool thing we got to do while we were in Chicago is that Addison and I went on the One Shot podcast. Um, we did! I've actually been on, on the One Shot podcast before as a player, but this time I got to run a game that I wrote and designed. Uh, it's a game called Coffee Detective. We played it with um, James and, again, Addison was there. And we also played with some of the really fantastic folks from the Neo Scum podcast, Mike McDowell and Eleni Sauvageau. They were phenomenal. But two of the three episodes of that are out now, and they are absolutely riotous. It is the hardest I have ever laughed in a three-hour period, like, nonstop. I've been listening back to the episodes on, like, my way to work, and it is so funny. I probably should not be listening to them while I drive. Like, it is oh, it is extremely inadvisable, 100%. actually. Um, but seriously, it was such a blast. Um, it was some of the most fun I've ever had sitting around a table with um, a bunch of people I had not met. So it was really, really just a wonderful time. I can't speak highly enough of the people who were there playing with us or of the experience we got to have. And again, that's something that was made possible just because of our patrons who uh, made the live show possible. There are a lot of opportunities that we get to have through this show not just related to the show itself, but with the people that we get to meet and the friendships we get to make and the artistic experiences that we get to have and the ways that this show allows us the freedom and the connections and the networking and the platform to do some other really wonderful things, whether that's, um, you know, getting things that we feel strongly about out to more people or whether that's making art that we really love or uh, collaborating with like-minded individuals to create something bigger than the sum of our parts. It's really just a phenomenal experience and we wouldn't have it without you. So thank you so much, everybody. I don't know how to follow that because that was lovely and very true. But thank you. Also, I think the Skyjacks live show episode is out now. So you should listen to that because Addison was hysterical. Oh, wonderful. I've been waiting for so long. You stop that. (laughs) I... I've just been waiting here with my eyes wide open. I can't close them, you know. Val, start the theme music. <laughs> Val. Val. As always, as always, I'll free you from this hell of my own creation. As always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. Studio. Pretty? 
witty, and gay.